Today happens to be week 11 of our Sutta Exploration Series. And for today's Sutta, we'll be working with the Majjhimanikaya number 18, which is the Madhupindika Sutta. It's truly a gem of a Sutta. It's a wonderful sutta. In English, it's the honeyball discourse. And um, in this sutta, we will become familiar with the term. We've seen it before, but this sutta is known to be uh, the sutta for going into a deeper understanding of what this term means. And the term itself is papancha. They've, many commentators have described it, uh, at least in English, we see it as mental proliferation, conceptual proliferation. And um, it's come up here in our own discussions several times in the past. So, but now this sutta is known for papanchas par excellence. So we'll go uh, delving into it shortly. If you remember the Buddha's teachings to the Venerable Anuruddha from a few weeks ago in the Anuruddha Mahavitakya Sutta. And in it, we saw how Venerable Anuruddha had been contemplating the seven great thoughts, or the seven thoughts of a great person. And he had delineated in his mind while he was meditating, this, this path is for one who is, uh, who has a lenient, a leaning towards a secluded lifestyle, for example. This is a path for someone with energy, etc. So so he gets to only seven, and Lord Punta was reading his mind from afar, and he appears in front of him and he says, wonderful, Anurudha, wonderful. These are wonderful seven qualities of a great person. However, you missed one. And he says, uh, this path is for one who lacks, who no longer has papanchas, meaning no more have, having the mental proliferations, the conceptual proliferations that go on in the mind. And in Pali, the term is nipapancha. Papancha, nipapancha. Ni would be the antonym prefix. So Narahant is someone who has nipapancha. 
So, and in this sutta, we meet yet again, um, as we did last week, uh, Venerable Mahakachana, who, uh, if you recall, he was um, the foremost in expositing, in, in classifying, explaining um, some of the verses, utterances of Lord Buddha's. So as we saw last time in the uh, Mahakachana Bhaddekaratta Sutta, uh, how he, uh, I, I won't say disentangled, but opened it up um, eloquently, beautifully. The, uh, the ideal lover of solitude, those verses as to what it means, as what the Lord Buddha meant before he went back to his kuti, to this group of bhikkhus who had come asking for the detailed explanation to this summary, brief summary. So uh, in addition to these two suttas, of course, Venerable Mahakachana is also, um, we encounter him in other suttas as well. So we see him in the Majjhimanikaya, um, as we've seen. We see him in the Anguttara Nikaya, and we also see him in the uh, Sangutta Nikaya. And uh, he has a, con a uniquely consistent uh, approach. His detailed explanations have a certain motif to them. Um, and even though sometimes it might sound a little bit dry, um, but it's so exquisitely perfect. He does not waste any words, as it were. Every word is perfectly placed. He rarely uses any metaphors or, 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 or um, uh, analogies or especially similes. The only simile that he uses typically is the simile of a man who goes searching for heartwood and ends up clipping away, trimming only the branches and thinking that's the heartwood. And in this example, he was simply, and we see this reoccurring several suttas. He's basically kind of like scolding the bhikkhus for coming to him rather than to go to the actual fountain of Dhamma, Lord Buddha, which is the heartwood. So that's the only, uh, simile that I've found that he uses. But other than that, I, I don't recall seeing any other. Um, his, his words go straight to the heart of the Dhamma. And, you know, he was also, we have two very um, uh, wise students, disciples of Lord Buddha. One, of course, was Venerable Sariputta, and the other was Venerable Mahakachana. Oftentimes, they put on the same pedestal, sometimes, actually, I can't say oftentimes, because of their ability in delineating, in explaining in detail. Um, however, with Venerable Sariputta, of course, he was only second to Lord Buddha in wisdom. He would simply get a single word or an entire paragraph, a statement of Lord Buddha or a, a doctrine, uh, a doctrinal principle, a concept of the Dhamma. And he would dis 
dismantle it. He would take it apart and he would go into deeper and deeper layers using analogies, using metaphors, using similes, abundantly, generously. Whereas Venerable Mahakachana, as I said earlier, uh, he just goes to the main, 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 whatever the juiciest part of that verse is that Lord Buddha gave. And usually it, it takes the shape of the sixth sense basis with Venerable Mahakachana. And then, so he would start from um, what the current usual um, situation is of a putujjana, for example, an uninstructed, ordinary, average human being. And then he would take it to uh, the level of a noble disciple who has mastered restraint of these six senses. So what it would uh, take the person to, at, to what level, uh, the ideal in a sense of a person who has now uh, on their way to attaining or has already attained. So he does give almost like the before and after um, um, image of what the teaching entails that are found within those verses. So he was known to take the verses, uh, usually verses from Lord Buddha or utterances from him that Lord Buddha might have left usually, perhaps even intentionally as a brief summary. Um, so, yeah, so they, they're, uh, you know, but he has a laser sharp accuracy in going to the very crux of the matter. So as we're going through the sutta, let's pay attention to what he's trying to say in that regard. There's is very frugal with his words, but wisdom is there throughout. So let's begin. Again, this is the Madhupindika Sutta, Majjhimanikaya number 18, the Honeyball Discourse. I have personally heard this. At one time, the Blessed One was staying at Nigroda's monastery in the Sakyan city of Kapilavattu, then the Blessed One put on his robes in the morning, and by taking along his bowl and outer robe, he walked into the city of Kapilavatu for alms. After the meal and while returning from the alms round, he entered the great forest. And in reaching a young bilva tree, he sat under it while resting his body, spending the day in meditation under its shade. A bilva tree is almost like a, a wild apple. Uh, I don't know if it's edible. I think it might be edible. So it was big enough to provide him with a shade. And the city of Kapilavatu, even though it's, it's not as the remnants of it, uh, you have different structures that archeologists have been uh, you know, excavating. You have some areas of uh, the city still around, but Sometimes in reading suttas, we think that they're very close, but they're not. So there's a lot of walking involved. 
And it doesn't say what time of the year it was, uh, but you obviously it wasn't the rainy season, monsoon season, but still it would get hot. Um, so going into the great forest is gonna provide one with a good amount of shade. Um, and the Buddha also was a big advocate, as we all know, of uh, seclusion. So here would be a place for him to go and practice and rest his body a little bit before heading back uh, in the evening to his monastery. Then the Sakyan Dandapani, having gone out walking and wandering for exercise, also entered the great forest. And in approaching the young bilva tree where the blessed one was seated, he exchanged greetings while standing there to one side, leaning on his walking stick, Dandapani said. Well, here we have an arrogant Sakyan aristocrat, basically, named Dandapani, who's apparently been following the blessed one because you're going into the great forest. It's not like there's a caravan of people going to the great forest. I mean, somebody must be very uh, picky about, okay, that path and specifically that bilva tree where Lord Buddha was sitting. So it's, we can see that it's intentionally exercise or you know whatever, even though Sutta say he was walking around for exercise. So he must have followed him from Kapilavatu, the city where Lord Buddha was doing his alms round. Um, so he approaches the Blessed One and asks him what may be termed as, um, we'll find out, a deliberate and very bluntly discourteous demeanor. Um, for example, he doesn't sit down. That's very uh, rare that you see in a sutta where even if people went to see other notable students or people came uh, from other sects visiting disciples, noble disciples of Lord Buddha, they would always exchange friendly greetings and then they would sit down to one side. So for example, in the Vinaya as bhikkhus, um, we cannot uh, give Dhamma talks to uh, someone if we're seated for them to be standing up, we can't give a Dhamma talk. Or if we're standing up and they're sitting down, there's another rule for that. We cannot do that. So there are these subtleties which also indicate uh, the presence or lack of respect that needs to be there. So uh, here we see that he is simply standing there on his golden stick. It was you know, just a wooden stick with, uh, I've heard that it has gold on it in it. Some people said it's actually made because he was very rich of pure gold. Now, interestingly enough, even devas that came to visit Lord Buddha or his noble disciples would never ever just keep hovering. It's a, it's a sign of disrespect. They would touch the ground with their feet. Otherwise, it would be like showing off to a noble arahant. So uh, they would do that even to arahants, let alone to the Buddha. So here we have this, this person who's showing a major sign of disrespect. Uh, anyhow, a little bit about Dandapani. 
He was the uncle of um, Princess Yashodara and her brother, uh, Devadatta. Devadatta was the bhikkhu who ended up trying to kill Lord Buddha several times. He conspired to um, replace him as the Lord of the Sangha. Um, so he had fed lots and lots of lies and slander basically to Dandapani. Plus, uh, here we see uh, Dandapani also being upset at the fact that Lord Buddha as Siddhartha Gautama left his niece, a young woman, a newly, uh, you know, a mother basically. And he went and, 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 and became a, a sadhu or a, a, a bhikkhu. So there was all this thing behind his question, which we're going to see coming up. And uh, a very provocative, uh, cunningly devised, in fact, simple looking question that he's going to ask. So here it goes. Basically, he's eliciting an argument. What teaching does the recluse proclaim? What does he teach? Very blunt, rough at the edges. And here's the Blessed One's response. Friend, I proclaim such a teaching through which one does not end up in disputes with anyone in this world of devas, along with its maras, brahmas, the community of recluses, brahmins, the world with its leaders and its people. Such a teaching whereby no more perceptions press upon the Brahmin who lives unyoked and free from sensuality without experiencing any more confusion or worry, having rid oneself from craving for any kind of rebirth into any state of becoming. This, friend, is the teaching I proclaim. This is what I teach. As you gather, this is a pretty tightly packed, complete, impenetrable, as far as trying to find, you know, holes in it to argue, um, given its legitimacy of what nobility is. Um, <laughs> and it definitely captures the essence of what the Dhamma is all about, but it's impenetrable, like it's perfect. And uh, in giving his answer, we see also how from the very beginning, Lord Buddha says, hey, I'm not interested in any disputes. In fact, my teaching advocates no disputing with anybody, with politicians, with leaders, with whoever's got the loudest voice today, none of that. So this kind of like throws Dandapani in a, in a, in a tailspin. And let's see. When this was said, the Sakyan Dandapani, I love this part, shook his head, stuck his tongue out, wagging it, while his forehead puckered in three lines. Dum, dum, dum three lines. So he was like, what? Ah, what? What is this? There's a human element there. You know, this is like almost 2,600 years ago. Someone who's so obnoxious, who's so full of himself, 
coming over to Lord Buddha, starting trying to start an argument, and he gets that, and he's like, that's not what I came here for. Almost very childish. Then he turned around and went away while leaning on his stick. Doesn't even, you know, exchange any like goodbyes or anything. Very rude. <laughs> Turns his back, basically. That's another sign of disrespect. Uh, then in the evening, uh, the Blessed One, coming out of his seclusion, went to Negroda's monastery and sat on the prepared seat and addressed the bhikkhus thus. So here he relates the whole thing, uh, which I will skip. So basically he says, bhikkhus, this morning I put on my robes uh, and by taking my alms bowl, whatever I just read. I'm just skipping because I already recorded this, as you know, um, this new translation I did uh, last week and it's on YouTube, so please feel free to listen to it as often as possible. The original, um, undiluted with my words, um, uh, words of Lord Buddha, that is. Um, so give it as many times as I listen as possible. So meanwhile, the Sakyan Dandapani, having gone out, uh, oh, he's continuing here, walking and wandering for exercise. So he asks me, what teaching does the recluse proclaim? What does he teach? And I replied, etc., etc. When this was said, and the Lord would then say, repeats basically, Dandapani shook his head, wagging, you know, wagging his tongue side to side, etc. When this was said, one of the bhikkhus, so uh, a certain bhikkhu said thus, but Bhante, what is the teaching spoken by the Blessed One? Through which one does not end up in disputes with anyone in this world of devas, along with its maras, brahmas, the community of recluses, brahmins, the world with its leaders and its people. Such a teaching whereby no more perceptions press upon the brahmin who lives unyoked and free from sensuality without experiencing any more confusion or worry having rid oneself from craving for any kind of rebirth into any state of becoming. So even a bhikkhu doesn't get like, okay, so what is that teaching? Which is kind of like putting yourself on the spot, like you must have heard Lord Buddha's teaching. You didn't, you know, just drop from Mars or something. And the Blessed One instructs, bhikkhu, whenever harassed by the mental proliferations, Papanchas, you mean it. Whenever harassed by the mental proliferations that are caused by getting caught up in personalizing memories of the world and its experiences, if one does not welcome them, nor delight in them, nor grasp onto them, then this means one has removed the underlying tendency for lust the underlying tendency for hatred, the underlying tendency for holding onto wrong views, the underlying tendency for doubt, the underlying tendency for conceit, the underlying tendency for the desire to be reborn, and the underlying tendency for delusion. This in itself puts an end to all disputes and the drive to resort to sticks and weapons, to taking sides, to quarreling, to fighting, to slandering, to all manners of accusations, 
to using vile language and to the telling of lies. In this way, Bhikkhu, all these evil and unwholesome situations cease for such a person without leaving any remainders behind. If you can just take this, you have the entirety of the Dhamma. Just write this down, print it somehow, record it somehow, and just replay it, and you have everything you need, in a sense. Because it's there, everything that we keep talking about. But of course, this is where papanchas get highlighted and how much they, in fact, harass. And that's the word that I wanted to use in translating. Um, typically, the word that in English that has been used to translate the sutta, and specifically this section of the sutta, has been besetting, beset a man, beset a person, uh, which, of course, has the same nuance. Uh, feel for it, but harass captures the whole experience of what happens to the mind when in the clutches, the grasp of bhavanjas um, that I wanted to also uh, put here. This is what the Blessed One said, and having given his brief instruction, the Sugata rose from his seat and went into his kuti. Sugata is a name uh, uh, another uh, name, a title of Lord Buddha. Um, when functioning blindly and being led by the five aggregates, we don't just grasp, we grab, we grab with the zero intention of letting go. So even though we call them grasping or clinging aggregates. But when we look at our attitude towards these aggregates, it's more of a grab, clenched fist. You know, a baby hippo or a relatively young hippo, hippopotamus, has one of the strongest bites it's about 2,000 pound PSI per square inch, 2,000 pounds of pressure. But that's nothing compared to a Nile crocodile, crocodile which has actually about 5,000 PSI pressure in a single bite. It bites and it doesn't relinquish, it doesn't let go. I have a feeling that our own grabbing of the aggregates is far stronger and intense than those two. And it gives us a sense of, well, this is, this is, this is me, this is namarupa, this is my mentality, materiality, this, this is, this, these are my sankaras. This is what makes me, me. And so long as we're not seeing this, we're basically, caught in its clutches. And oftentimes we don't even, I'm, I'm pausing here for, for um, highlighting the grasping part. 
because it's crucial to understand. And I just mentioned the word, um, even though it's two words, namarupa, but they're seen as a single word, mentality, materiality. There's no hyphen in between, in essence. But what nama stands for, um, to clarify, sometimes the question arises as to Bhante, what does namarupa really is? I get it. Sometimes it's name and form. What is name? Like, what are we talking? The person's name? What is it? In a nutshell, Nama stands for feeling, perception, intentionality, contact, and attention, these five. And Rupa stands for the Chatu Maha Bhutani. They are the four great elements and their constituent parts. Um, in the suttas, we also see uh, the seeds from both uh, parents, as well as milk and gruel or rice. That's also part of the rupa. But what comes out of these is what we continuously are grasp grabbing onto. So soon after the Blessed One had left, it occurred to those bhikkhus. Friends, the Blessed One has now gone back to his kuti, but without giving us a detailed explanation of what he mentioned in brief to us. So they repeat exactly what the verse uh, was. And I'm not going to repeat it here to save some time for us, uh, for any questions. And perhaps it's worth to read it again. Why not? Bhikkhu, so they're reiterating what Lord Buddha said to each other. Bhikkhu, whenever harassed by the mental proliferations that are caused by getting caught up in personalizing memories of the world and its experiences, if one does not welcome them, nor delight in them, nor grasp onto them, then this means one has removed the underlying tendency for lust the underlying tendency for hatred, the underlying tendency for holding on to wrong views, the underlying tendency for doubt, the underlying tendency for conceit, the underlying tendency for the desire to be reborn, and the underlying tendency for delusion. This in itself puts an end to all disputes and to the drive to resort to sticks and weapons, to taking sides, to quarreling, to fighting, to slandering, to all manners of accusations, to using vile language, and to the telling of lies. In this way, Bhikkhu, all these evil and, and unwholesome situations cease for such a person without leaving any remainders behind. You know, in our minds, we have certain exceptions, situations that we consider to be exceptionally unique, whereby we can leave our sila behind. Yeah, I can practice the five precepts up until somebody comes to me with this. Somebody says something against my mother or my country, my family, or hits me in this way or we have exceptions in our mind. But just recalling 
to ourselves. Some of these words, the underlying tendency for lust or for hatred, eventually it leads a person to, when it's removed, it leads a person to move away from using sticks and weapons, meaning fighting or using harsh words. Because the moment we start exchanging harsh words, a whole Pandora's box opened up because you have released the most powerful surge flow and there's no way you could stop it until it dies down. But after a major carnage, after a major, major chaos had uh, taken place already. So for the most part in the world, we are encouraged to lean into uh, grasp, get mixed up uh, in different types of views. Usually wrong view, by the way. And in this sutta, it's saying from this ver these verses, these words actually of this verse, we're seeing how uh, um, in the case of a person who does not lean into, does not grasp, not get mixed up to the with these uh, wrong views, then they won't have. the blindness to be sucked into this is my soul identification. This is me. In Pali is esome This is myself. This is my soul, if you will. Such a person is able to see the arising and vanishing of phenomena. Such a person is able to see suffering arise and the disappearance of suffering. And earlier I was briefly mentioning Nama Rupa from the aggregates and how we have the propensity of grabbing onto them. When you grab something, you're unable to see its rise and disappearance. You're identified with it. And that's why the Lord Buddha is also saying personalization. Personalization, that's the key, that's the problem that we must understand. Otherwise, we are gonna be lifting sticks and weapons and we are gonna be hurling insults. We are going to be saying, okay, hold my sila for a second. Hold my sila over here. I'm gonna go in and, and, and get into, like get my hands dirty. Later on, I'll retake my sila or sit and go on a retreat or something. But this is big, I have to address. You don't understand, I have to. No, you don't. Otherwise, we're going to be sucked into it. And it's very difficult to get out of. But a person who has no longer the doubt is a person who sees the arising and vanishing of these thoughts that are coming in, that are trying to invade. That's where the papanchas are doing their work. They're adding layers upon layers of details that don't exist. Nuances of identification of me versus you. 
because a person who has no more any Tao is a person who has tasted the Dhamma. Okay, let's continue. And the bhikkhus reflected. Now, who could give us a detailed explanation for this short summary? And then it occurred to those bhikkhus. The Venerable Mahakachana is praised by the teacher, as well as considered wise and held in such high regard by his fellow companions in the holy life. The Venerable Mahakachana is capable in giving us the detailed explanation for this short summary given by the Blessed One. What if we approached the Venerable Mahakachana and asked him about this? Then those bhikkhus went and approached the Venerable Mahakachana and after exchanging friendly greetings with him, they sat down to one side and sat. Friend Mahakachana, the Blessed One gave us a short summary, but without giving the detailed explanation for it. And right after uttering his words, he arose from his seat and returned to his kuti. Now this is the summary of the teaching he gave us. So because I went over it twice, so I'm just going to skip it this time. And uh, so mental proliferation though, I, I just want to uh, pause here for, for that, um, which is Papanjas. Uh, first off, I, I highly recommend reading um, a book uh, written by the late uh, Venerable um, Katakurum de Nyanananda of um, Sri Lanka. He passed away um, about three years ago, I believe, three and a half, four years ago, maybe. Uh, and he was such a brilliant, brilliant um, uh, monk, uh, bhikkhu. He was both a practitioner, which is beautiful, and a scholar. Um, he would give him anything and he would take it apart. So without disrespect to Venerable Mahakachana, I would say without hesitation that he would qualify with my own little understanding of the Dhamma, uh, Venerable Nyanananda uh, would, would be our modern Venerable Mahakachana because of his vast oceanic size knowledge of the Dhamma and the commentaries and the sub-commentaries. So he wrote extensively on Papanchas. In fact, it was the major topic of his dissertation at the University, I believe, of Peradinya in Kandy, at Sri Lanka. And his professors convinced him to turn it into a book, which ended up being the book titled Concept and Reality, which uh, is now available again in print. And it's freely available also uh, in PDF online. So, uh, Papanjas. Um, it's the last stage of, uh, think of it as the last stage of um, sense uh, cognition. And um, we also have Vitaka Vichara. Uh, these are constituent parts of the jhanic factors, basically. Vitaka would be thinking, um, uh, Vitaka Vichara, and uh, Vichara would be the pondering part thinking and pondering. So sometimes some people have been confused as to what is the difference between these and papanchas? Aren't they the same thing? They're not. Uh, uh, and because papancha is like, the image that comes to me is like playing around in a sewage, in a garbage tank. 
garbage container with all the nasty stuff. That's what papanjas are, think of it. But thinking doesn't necessarily have to. Pondering doesn't necessarily have to be such a, a, a state of affairs. Um, so where does the word come from, papancha? So it's made up with these two words, um, prapanch, prapanch. And, um, and it conveys the, the meaning of spreading out, diffusion, expansion, uh, even um, exponentially multipli multiplying itself. So if this would be, if we would use something like in physics, nuclear physics, it would be like when the explosion takes place and these neutrons are just like blowing up or protons are just like spreading out and they're, they're exponentially increasing as they spread out. Um, diffusing um, or expanding, uh, rather, spreading out. Uh, so vichara has more of a pondering or the discursive quality to it. You're, you're trying to weigh things. You're thinking about it, vitaka, and then vichara. You're weighing things. There's investigation also involved there. There's consideration to what was thought, which is vitaka. Um, so papancha, on the other hand, is more uh, of a comprehensive term, uh, which brings into it the habitual tendencies, which Lord Buddha is talking about the anusayas, or latent tendencies um, of, of uh, um, even, we can say, latent tendencies, um, or even upakileshas, that can come in to sully the thinking process, especially the pondering. It puts its own layers. And because it is sullied by the defilements, the anusayas, whatever papanchas we have, they are pretty dirty. Hence the image that I used. It might not be the prettiest image, of course, of a garbage can or sewage that one is playing in. There's nothing new there. It's just driven by ego, driven by defilements, a lack of understanding. There you go, avidya. Let's continue. Now, they say, we have come asking if the Venerable Mahakachana could please provide us with the detailed explanation for this short summary. Then the Venerable Mahakachana addressed the bhikkhus thus. Here we see the, the analogy or, or the, the, the simile that he uses usually. Come on. Friends, much like a man in need of heartwood going in search of it and coming across a standing huge tree that is full of heartwood, he ignores the heartwood, the roots and the trunk, and instead considers the branches or leaves to be its heartwood. In the same way, venerable ones, while being face to face with the teacher, you have completely ignored him and have come instead asking me for the explanation. For he is the Buddha, the blessed one who knows and sees. He is vision itself. He is knowledge. He is truth. He has become the Dhamma and is Brahma. He is the teacher, the one who instructs and is the clarifier of meanings. 
He has given us the deathless. He is the Lord of the Dhamma, the Tathagata. You must have approached the Blessed One and asked the teacher himself. For then it was the right time to ask for the detailed explanation of this summary. And as the Blessed One explains it, so should you remember and bear it in your hearts. Look at the humility. Look at the humility. Do we find teachers like that today? Who kind of forego their whatever authority they might be attributed by their students and just defer it back to their own teacher. And then here the bhikkhus say, indeed, indeed friend Makachana, the teacher is the Buddha, the blessed one who knows and sees. He is vision itself. He is knowledge. He is truth. He has become the Dhamma and is Brahma. He is the teacher, the one who instructs and is the clarifier of meanings. He has given us the deathless. He is the Lord of the Dhamma, the Tathagata. We must have approached the Blessed One and asked the teacher himself, for then it was the right time to ask for the detailed explanation of this summary. Nevertheless, the Venerable Mahakachana is praised by the Blessed One himself, as well as considered wise and held in such high regard by his fellow companions in the holy life. The Venerable Mahakachana is capable in giving us the detailed explanation for this short summary given by the Blessed One. We kindly ask that friend Makachana may not find our request troublesome and please explain this to us. In that case, friends, listen carefully to what I shall say and pay close attention. Yes, friend, those bhikkhus replied and the Venerable Makachana continued. In returning back to his kuti, the Blessed One not having given you the detailed explanation to his short summary that instructs, Bhikkhus, whenever harassed by the mental proliferations that are caused by getting caught up in personalizing memories of the world and its experiences, if one does not welcome them, nor delight in them, nor grasp onto them, then this means one has removed the underlying tendency for lust, the underlying tendency for hatred, the underlying tendency for holding on to wrong views, the underlying tendency for doubt, the underlying tendency for conceit, the underlying tendency for the desire to be reborn, and the underlying tendency for delusion. This in itself puts an end to all disputes and the drive to resort to sticks and weapons, to taking sides, to quarreling, to fighting, to slandering, to all manners of accusations, to using vile language and to the telling of lies. In this way, Bhikkhus, all these evil and unwholesome situations cease for such a person without leaving any remainders behind. Now, the way I understand and explain the Blessed One's short summary here is as follows. Friends, when the eyes meet with forms, as a result, there occurs sense awareness of eyesight. And when these three come together, there is contact. In the presence of contact, feelings arise. What is felt is then perceived. And as a result, one engages in thinking, 
Entertaining thoughts and memories, there takes place mental proliferation. Now, whatever one thus mentally proliferates is the very source of what harasses a person who gets caught up in personalizing memories of the world and its experiences, which themselves are the products of mental proliferation, whether from the past, future, or present, all triggered by the experience of eyesight. Here we're going to see with each sense space how Venerable Mahakachana applies the same pattern as he repeats it for the other senses. And what he is taking this into the arena of is that of conditionality, um, pacheya. Uh, so that's the theme that we're going to see playing out of the entire exposition, uh, meaning the principle of conditionality, which we also see, in, obviously, in the, in the uh, Paticca Sampada, uh, the, the principle of dependent origination or co-arising. And at the last part of um, this classification, in this sutta, we are going to see how Venerable Mahakachana brings it all to a full stop in the form of it ceasing when the preceding conditions cease. So because of causality, because of this, this arises. But when there is the preceding part that no more, it's no more there, then what was to come after that no longer happens, no longer comes to be, hence its cessation. So that's where the classification is going to lead us to. And then he continues, in the same way, when the ears meet with sounds, as a result, there occurs a sense awareness of hearing. And when these three come together, there is contact. In the presence of contact, feelings arise. What is felt is then perceived. And as a result, one engages in thinking, entertaining thoughts and memories. There takes place mental proliferation. Now, whatever one thus mentally proliferates is the very source of what harasses a person who gets caught up in personalizing memories of the world and its experiences, which themselves are the products of mental proliferation, whether from the past, future, or present all triggered by the experience of hearing. In the Puttapada Sutta, which is Diganikaya number nine, we see how Lord Buddha says, to be thinking at all is the inferior state. So it's much better not to be thinking. Now, of course, that doesn't mean that we need to be in a sammoha or stupefaction state. That's not what is meant here. So we need to be careful not to fall into either extremes. So remember, this is uh, the middle path. Majjhimapada, the uh, Dhamma, Buddhism is the middle path after all. But we have, especially now a propensity, we have this drive to constantly be thinking and pondering thing, things and never taking a moment's rest. Uh, in the Panchattaya Sutta, which is Majjhima Nikaya number 102, 
we read uh, how Lord Buddha says, a perception is a disease, a boil, a dart. Um, while the complete absence of perception is senseless stupefaction, <laughs> samoha, which I was referring to. So, um, because we're also, we're not also, but we're always at the mercy of concepts, concepts, thoughts and ideas of the world, which we uh, later term as our understanding, my understanding, my view, my opinion, my beliefs, Hence, they're called michaditi, a wrong view. Um, because it doesn't just stay as my understanding. It's going to turn into my experience of the world. And if I'm starting with a wrong view, guess what? My entire understanding and my experience itself is going to end up being nothing other than absolute delusion having nothing to do with reality. That's why we call an awakened one an awakened one. <laughs> because the light of wisdom is now shining for the person. They see things the way they really are. And there's no more wrong view. So um, we need to understand the, the emptiness uh, of concepts, the, in the ultimate sense, the in, emptiness of, 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 of uh, concepts. Uh, of course, Lord Buddha doesn't uh, nullify, like I, I was mentioning in the Panchataya Sutta, Majjhimanikaya 102. Uh, in another Sutta, Majjhimanikaya 60, Apannaka Sutta, the, the faultless Sutta. Apannaka means faultless. Uh, we see how the Buddha is saying, I have a quote here. One can, therefore, without inhibition, make use of the conceptual tools at his command in his spiritual endeavors. Only he must sharpen them and continue to sharpen them until they wear themselves out in the process, in the process of using them, us using them. So it's wears itself out and the mind sees ultimately that it's just a means to an end the concepts i mean so uh, this is a, a deterrent from for us not to go into extreme well the buddha is saying therefore no thinking concepts are bad no as, as evidenced by what he said that's not what he's saying we need to use the conceptual tools but not be slaves to them so in the same way, friends, when the nose meets with odors, as a result, there occurs sense awareness of smelling. And when these three come together, there is contact. In the presence of contact, feelings arise. What is felt is then perceived. And as a result, one engages in thinking, entertaining thoughts and memories. There takes place mental proliferation. Now, whatever one thus mentally proliferates is the very source of what harasses a person who gets caught up in personalizing memories of the world and its experiences, which themselves are the products of mental proliferation, whether from the past, future, or present, all triggered by the experience of smelling. 
As I've mentioned to you uh, in uh, previous times, um, I feel like saying this, I, I wouldn't want you to be spending time taking notes. Take the moment, take, take the words. And that's why I'm going through each of these sections and not missing, especially these explanations with every one of the six senses, because you don't know when it might happen. When you relinquish your views, your opinions on what the Dhamma is or what these verses are supposed to mean, when you allow yourself that space, you're open to it. Suddenly, you might have that breakthrough. So please, that's why we sat also, the first 30 minutes, we sat to prepare the mind. So many countless beings attained even arahantship by listening to the Dhamma. So see if you can find that space within you. And of course, this is obviously being recorded and I'm gonna post it later on. You can come back and take as many notes as you want uh, from those. But now let's dedicate this to really taking it in like a sponge, a dry sponge, taking in water. Usually we look at the eyesight, the perception of eyesight, uh, of the visual as the predominant. And, and of course, even uh, scientists today say that that's how we usually take the world in. But we don't pay enough attention to what's also coming in through, let's say, the tongue via tasting or the ears via hearing or, 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 or the nose through smelling. And these are bringing in information that lead the mind to get enthralled, excited. These are the things that are going to inevitably drag the person into the mud bath that is called papanchas. That's why we need to be exercising restraint as to what we are being exposed to with these sense doors. An interesting experiment you might do is today, moving forward, just see if your senses, let's say the nose, picks up some odor, some fragrance. See what that does to the mind. What are the feeling tones coming in because of that perception? coming through the door or hearing a sound or tasting something. So even though there's all these things going on, we rarely see what is really taking place. So the sense doors, even though they are there to familiarize us with the world that we're living in, oftentimes they also camouflage what is taking place. So see if you can actually, uh, especially when we're thinking about like in the last sutta, we talked about resuscitating the past. Lord Buddha says, do not resuscitate the past, nor be anxious expecting something in the future. And a lot of times the mind is in a remorseful state of what has taken place. There's guilt, there's worry about the future. 
there's anxiety. Again, triggered by a sound, something we saw, something we heard, something we smelled. So these are opportunities to ponder the possibilities uh, that eventually turn out to be papanchas, the mud bath of papanchas. And that's why when a person comes and touches us or says something and shakes us, suddenly we're, we're startled into reality. We come out of papancha land, as it were. So back to the sutta. In the same way, friends, when the tongue meets with flavors, as a result, there occurs sense awareness of tasting. And when these three come together, there is contact. In the presence of contact, feelings arise. What is felt is then perceived. And as a result, one engages in thinking, entertaining thoughts and memories. There takes place mental proliferation. Now, whatever one thus mentally proliferates is the very source of what harasses a person who gets caught up in personalizing memories of the world and its experiences, which themselves are the products of mental proliferation, whether from the past, future, or present, all triggered by the experience of tasting. The range of papancha correlates with the scope of the six senses. There we see the cessation of influence of the six senses. And because of that, there's no residue left. That's what I was referring to. By putting the guard there, an alert guard, and that's another reason why we have sangvara, uh, uh, which is a restraint, the restraint of the six senses, knowing, guarding the doors of the gates of this wonderful city called the mind. We're guarding it. And the ultimate goal for that is so that there would be the cessation of papancha. Basically take a person who doesn't have papancha, you pretty much have an anahant. Because they, as the, the qualifier, if you remember earlier, Nipapancha, a person who no longer has papanchas, mental proliferations taking place in the mind. They're living in the present moment, unadulterated, undiluted by anything else other than what is taking place. So, and well, if you don't have that, then what do you have? Well, you have the fool, the fool, Lord Buddha in the Sakka. Panya, Panha Sutta in the Diga Nikaya 21, he says, the fool who indulges in and delights in mental proliferation in Papanchas is far removed from Nibbana, the incomparable freedom from bondage. But he who, having given up such conceptualizations, delights in the path to non-proliferation, Nipapancha. It is he who attains to Nibbana, the incomparable freedom from bondage. So Nibbana is not the result of much thinking. It's the absence of that. But the thinking, pondering, they're necessary tools that need to wear themselves out in the process as they're providing us with a better understanding of what's taking place. And what's taking place is 
this personalization, which slowly, slowly loses its roots from under it. And that's how it can become eradicated. In the same way, when the body meets with tactile objects, as a result, there occurs a sense awareness of touching. And when these three come together, there is contact. In the presence of contact, feelings arise. What is felt is then perceived, and as a result, one engages in thinking, entertaining thoughts and memories. There takes place mental proliferation. Now, whatever one thus mentally proliferates is the very source of what harasses a person who gets caught up in personalizing memories of the world and its experiences, which themselves are the products of mental proliferation, whether from the past, future, or present, all triggered by the experience of touching. Okay. In the same way, when the mind meets with thoughts, as a result, there occurs sense awareness of thinking. And when these three come together, there is contact. In the presence of contact, feelings arise. What is felt is then perceived. And as a result, one engages in thinking, entertaining thoughts and memories. There takes place mental proliferation. Now, whatever one thus mentally proliferates is the very source of what harasses a person who gets caught up in personalizing memories of the world and its experiences, which themselves are the products of mental proliferation, whether from the past, future, or present, all triggered by the experience of thinking. You know, we're always stitching, stitching with craving. You know, like sewing pieces of fabric. Much like a needle in a thread while sewing two pieces of cloth together. We're always stitching this pseudo reality of our experiences with our sanyas, with what are, we think that are happening, our sankaras, memories of the past, expectations of the future, projections, etc. In this analogy that I'm using of the needle and the thread and the fabric, I'm referring to the papanchas, of course. Our personalized storylines that we carry in our heads. Well, we technically carry them through our ears, our eyes, our tongue, our nose, body, mind. Now, the difference between a putujana, an ordinary average, unlearned being, and an arahant uh, is that when we look at the arahant from the outside, it might look like they're also sewing, they're also stitching the fabric, and the needle might be going in through and through both pieces of fabric. But when we lean in and look at the needle, we see that the needle does not have any thread going through it. So we pull the needle out and we pull the pieces of fabric apart and they are not connected. They're not slaves to their sannyas, to their sankharas. So an arahant goes through the process of thinking, even pondering, behaving amidst all of us in society, looking like there's nothing different but they lack the threading, meaning the papanjas. 
I found this image quite lovely to describe this process, this very intricate process. And I wanted to share them with you. Um, it was through a book I read by Dhammajiva uh, Mahatera from Sri Lanka. He had written it somewhere. Friends, in the presence of a functioning eye, visible forms and the sense awareness of eyesight, contact becomes possible. When contact is present thus, feelings manifest. And when there is feeling, then perception becomes possible. As a result of perception, thinking becomes possible. And when there is thinking, then it becomes possible to point out what it is that harasses a person who gets caught up in personalizing memories of the world and its experiences, which themselves are the products of mental proliferation. So now we're seeing the theme of the Paticca Samuppada playing much more clearly. And there's another wonderful sutta, which is much more, uh, in a sense, regimented without extra explanations offered in it. And uh, what I'm referring to is the Chachaka Sutta, Majjhimanikaya number 148, a very, very powerful sutta. Um, people have really gone deep in their practice just by listening to it several times. So I highly encourage you to do that. So you see elements of that in this Madhupindika Sutta as well. Um, so the Papanchas again here, which is uh, for eso me atta, which is this is myself, that sense of identification is being referred to given the form, given the sound, given the taste, etc., which is obscuring the true clarity of the mind. Um, while also giving rise to obsession, obsession about what we saw, obsession about what we heard, uh, whether good or bad. Uh, it's obsession. It dominates the mind. It sullies the mind with the papanchas. And here we have the, uh, when you have the papanchas, it also means that we have the anusayas, meaning uh, they're led by the three um, tanha, ditti, and mana, which are basically tanha is craving, ditti is um, the opinions, uh, even wrong view, of course, um, and mana is conceit. This trio plays along uh, beautifully in the realm in the in the in the world of papanchas. In fact, it animates papanchas. It, that's the thing which is also obscuring what's really taking place, um, turning the mind uh, rather obsessed. Similarly, in the presence of a functioning ear, audible sounds, and the sense awareness of hearing, contact becomes possible. When contact is present, thus feelings manifest. Um, and when there is feeling, then perception becomes possible. As a result of perception, thinking becomes possible. And when there is thinking, then it becomes possible to point out what it is that harasses a person who gets caught up in personalizing memories of the world and its experiences, which themselves are the products of mental proliferation. Uh, similarly, in the presence of a functioning nose, um, to save up time, I'm going to go ahead and just go through these different senses just by reading the first portion of the first line of each, because 
I mean, you understand they're referring to the, the six senses. So similarly in the presence of a functioning tongue, similarly in the presence of a body, tactile objects, and uh, then there is the sense awareness of touching. Similarly in the presence of a cognizant mind, thoughts and the sense awareness of thinking, con uh, contact becomes possible. When contact is present, thus feelings manifest. And when there is feeling, then perception becomes possible. As a result of perception, thinking becomes possible. And when there is thinking, then it becomes possible to point out what it is that harasses a person who gets caught up in personalizing memories of the world and its experiences, which themselves are the products of mental proliferation. Uh, in a way, we can say that thinking and feeling are both optional. That's what we're getting the image of, in a sense. Feeling in the sense that we're, we're, we're obsessing over something. We're holding on to the feeling. Uh, so when it is no longer just a feeling, when it is no longer just a thinking or a thought that arises and vanishes, when we have added that extra layer of personal personalization to them, we, that doesn't have, it's not a necessary thing. That's what the Lord Buddha is saying. Uh, but the mind is always trying to find some form of friction, some type of a relatability, tiny little jolts, and sometimes even massively shocking earthquakes of experiences that have some kind of a lasting flavor for us they leave that mark in us. But why? So that the mind can amuse itself to remain constantly in a state of occupation, being occupied, being fascinated with various kinds of states of mind. So it needs to chew on something, if you will. That's why so many of us feel awkward when there is stillness in the mind suddenly. When people reach the state of equanimity, upekka, in their meditation, sometimes they're jolted. They're like, this is unusual. Something needs to be happening. Why isn't something happening? As if it's a bad thing. In fact, <laughs> it's a wonderful thing. That means the ground is set now for what is to follow. But we don't go around looking for that. So this agitation of something must be taking place. How come it's not happening? Makes us lose that beautiful calm of equanimity. So, and the mind doesn't like to be bored. It will translate this state of, I just am using the equanimous state as an example here, but that quietude, that state of contentment can lead a person sometimes who's not understanding as to what is taking place behind, behind the scenes, to look at it as a state of hmm, boredom. I'm bored. That's another thing that comes up with some meditators. No, you're mistranslating it. There's wrong view. Please pull back. Just, just take a step back and just look where you were and look how you are now. Is there a difference? There was chaos, there was anxiety, turmoil in your mind. Now there isn't. 
That ain't so bad. So, but if the, you know, most of the time, however, people want to distract themselves incessantly and indefinitely, and uh, the mind ends up being like a seesaw in becoming and non-becoming, becoming and non-becoming. So you're, you, there is preferential uh, preferences basically. And now we are in the la la land of resuscitating the past and expecting something in the future. So um, we're not seeing basically the arising and the vanishing, which is a key ingredient in the understanding of, um, of a person uh, entering into arahantship, approaching it, or an arahant. They clearly see this from what we understand. In, in these descriptions given. So the word is upada, which is uh, becoming in a sense or arising and vaya, which is uh, the opposite of that, uh, the non-becoming or the, the weathering away, fading away. Um, and basically understanding these two extremes is all about samaditi, which I was mentioning earlier, which is right view. But friends, in the absence of a functioning eye, this is where he is tying it all together. In the absence of a functioning eye, absence of visible forms, where the sense of awareness of eyesight is no longer present, then contact becomes impossible because he just eliminated the preceding cause. When contact is absent, thus feelings do not manifest. And in the absence of feelings, perceptions do not occur. In the absence of perceptions, thinking becomes impossible. And when there is no more thinking, then it is impossible to point out anything that would harass a person who is no more caught up in personalizing memories of the world and its experiences, which themselves are the products of mental proliferation. Uh, okay. Similarly, in the absence of a functioning ear, um, absence of audible sounds where the sense awareness of hearing is no longer present, then contact becomes impossible. When contact is absent, thus feelings do not manifest. And in the absence of feelings, perceptions do not occur. In the absence of perceptions, thinking becomes impossible. And when there is no more thinking, then it is impossible to point out anything that would harass a person who is no more caught up in personalizing memories of the world and its experiences, which themselves are the products of mental proliferation, which basically what the world is trying to have us do the opposite of. The world wants us to be very much engaged, identified, personalizing the world and all its experiences. The world wants us to mentally proliferate. The economy runs on that today's economy, which is so convoluted of consumerism, etc., political systems, what's happening in the world today, all these fear mongering, everything that's happening is all the product of mental proliferation. So let's be smart about what's happening. Uh, so we're basically detaching ourselves from papanchas. That's what these verses uh, explanation, uh, detailed explanation of Venerable Mahakachana is referring to, detaching. From what? Um, 
Well, because there is a, 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 an attachment that we have. Remember the, gra the grabbing, the Nile crocodiles, 5,000 PSI bite? That grabbing uh, prevents us from understanding things as they are. Lord Buddha calls it yatabhutang pajanati. The person understands how things come to be. But we grab. And several, so I think in the beginning suttas, I think it was the second week that we were doing these series in the Pachalayamana Sutta, the dozing off with Venerable Mahamukhalana, if you recall, when Venerable Mahamukhalana turned to Lord Buddha and asked, Bhante, is there a very succinct, very short, very brief, encapsulating teaching, very short, by following which a person can attain the ultimate security from bondage, meaning arahanship, freedom from dukkha? And the Buddha says, yes. He says, Moggallana, you must understand that nothing is fit to be clung to, grabbed onto, nothing, including our understanding of Nibbana, including Nibbana itself. Otherwise, it's just a concept. It becomes a concept. We're always latching on to something. Remember, the mind doesn't like to go from a papancha-ridden state to absence of papancha and feel okay unless it is being prepared continuously to become acclimated to that. So they need to, the mind has to be detached from this propensity, this drive. But how? This would be a legitimately um, asked question here. How? How can we become detached from mental proliferations? What is the method of detaching? would be another way of asking the question. What is the thing that gets us to disengage from self-identification? What is the method? It is by simply knowing, knowing that we are clinging, that knowing that we are grabbing, that knowing that we are carrying the raft over our head. So many times we, we think we know the Dhamma, we've memorized, we know we can take it apart, we can explain so many things, but that is like carrying the raft over our head on land. We're still holding on because we're still lost in the whirlpool of papanchas. But how can we know? How can we know? The knowing that we are, but how can we know? It is by using a meditation object. It is by using a meditation object that is tried and tested and proven itself to be reliable for us. Thanks to our commitment, of course, it's not the tool that's gonna make it outstanding. It is how it's being used, of course, right? But in our very rich tradition, we have so many tools. We have the breath, we have mitta, we have contemplation of the body. We have contemplation of feelings, mind. We have contemplation of death. We have um, the qualities of the triple gem, Buddha, Dhammo, Sangho. All these are powerful, powerful 
tools that we can use to grab hold of ourselves, to anchor ourselves down. When the papanchas come, it's like a tornado pulling us away. The knowing takes place when we are anchored safely in the object of meditation. And this is where the spotlight can be shed on what's taking place. So we're not functioning on autopilot. And that's one, uh, that's what I would like to say that uh, as a way to detach ourselves from the papanchas. It is the, the dedication to the meditation object. Hence, sati is extremely important. Sati, your mindfulness. What's happening here in my mind right now? That's why I invite you to always be checking. That's what the, gu the guards are, the metaphorical guards around your city gates. And there's six of them, right? Six gates for your six senses. Always be on guard to shed the spotlight with wise attention, meaning yoni so manasikara. That's how we will reveal the magic show that's taking place before our eyes, but we don't know it. Because we think this is me, this is mine. This is myself. That's how we're fooled by the sanyas, by the sankaras, and by the papanchas. Because they separate us from seeing things as they are. So, and Venerable uh, Mahakarchana continues, similarly in the absence of a functioning nose, um, the absence of a functioning tongue, uh, the absence of a, 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 of a body, uh, and in the absence of tactile objects where the sense awareness of touching is no longer present, then contact becomes impossible. When contact is absent, thus feelings do not manifest. And in the absence of feelings, perceptions do not occur. In the absence of perceptions, thinking becomes impossible. And when there is no more thinking, then it is impossible to point out anything that would harass a person who is no more caught up in personalizing memories of the world and its experiences, which themselves are the products of mental proliferation. You can think of papanchas are as simply the deluded self or egos, even though I rarely use that term, egos way of, of giving us a false sense of grounding. I mentioned so many times the need for us to ground ourselves. We seek to ground ourselves, especially in case of trauma we've experienced. Anxiety, because we're always taken away from the reality of what's taking place. But what is that? So in a way, you can look at Papancha's also the ego's way of trying to create this pseudo-reality, trying to protect itself, protect us from the perceived threats surrounding us. Remember, even an unknown, even upekka can be a threat. Even that calm state for an unprepared mind, that's why it's getting jolted. They want to bring something that creates friction and agitation. The mind thinks that being agitated is the normal state. Now you see what I mean by the deluded mind, by having wrong view, because it's completely upside down, topsy-turvy, it's, it's convoluted. 
So it is creating a narrative that is, um, yeah, it is, it's, it's predictable. Um, it gives us a false sense of control, basically. Papanchas are trying to give us a false sense of control by creating a narrative in a reactionary form, in a way for us to understand the world around, even though it's completely false. So the inner guidance, it's like an inner guidance system that is trying to address whatever it thinks is taking place or we think is taking place, completely divorced from whatever is really taking place. Hence, papanchas are like a mud bath or you know sewage. Now, whether this construction of pseudo-reality is good for us or not, doesn't matter to the deluded mind. It is irrelevant and even seen as a waste of time. So the attitude, the average, uh, mind has is that papanchas are never to be questioned. We never like to question them. We never like to challenge their authenticity. And so they remain unchallenged, unquestionably accepted. And this is after all where our familiar and habitual tendencies come from. While as I mentioned earlier, tanha, which is craving, uh, conceit, mana, and wrong view, ditti, are always leading the show, always. So again, how do we do this? We must always be including sati, mindfulness. Mindfulness is not a passive affair. It's a very mighty protection mechanism. Sati is very protective, can be very protective. Sati is the one that comes in and says, hey, taps you on the shoulder and says, hey, buddy, hello, you're not on your meditation object. Come back. Stay with the breath. Stay with metta. Stay with buddho. Stay with the mind contemplation, whatever your object is. So it, Sati, in this case, anchors us in what really matters in the present body in the living experience, in not going anywhere other than here, staying here. And that's when we're going to see the colorations of the kilesias taking place, the defilements. So similarly, in the absence of a cognizing mind, uh, absence of thoughts, where the sense awareness of thinking is no longer present, then contact becomes impossible. When contact is absent, thus feelings do not manifest. And in the absence of feelings, perceptions do not occur. In the absence of perceptions, thinking becomes impossible. And when there is no more thinking, then it is impossible to point out anything that would harass a person who is no more caught up in personalizing memories of the world and its experiences, which themselves are the products of mental proliferation. So those three things, if you can recall, tanha, craving, ditti, wrong view, opinions, and mana, conceit. Seeing those in our personal experience as it's taking place with the help of sati really is the way to detach ourselves 
from personalization, further pers personalization, because that's how we're going to free ourselves from the yoke that Lord Buddha talks about initially, the yoke of proliferating concepts in order for us to, to relinquish those, the jaws of the Nile crocodile's 5,000 PSI bite because now we're gonna be able to see and remove the evil states of mind. Mind that is lost in the papancha land because now we see it's no longer there. We're no longer lost. And this also releases us not just from our internal conflicts but also entire societies from their own conflicts, if they're able to see this. And that is the main message of the Madhupindika, in fact. So friends, in returning back to his Kuti, the Blessed One, not having given you the detailed explanation to his short summary, which he goes again uh, with that entire um, short summary, um, um, this is how I understand and explain the Blessed One's short summary, Venuva says. Um, now, friends, if you wish, please go and approach the Blessed One and ask him about this. And as the Blessed Lord explains it to you, you should listen carefully, remembering and bearing it in your hearts. Yes, friend, replied those bhikkhus, being delighted and grateful in hearing the Venerable Mahakachana's words, as they arose from their seats and went to the Blessed One. And after paying homage to the teacher, they sat down to one side and recounted all that had taken place while adding, Bhante, having requested from the Venerable Mahakachana the meaning of the summary given to us earlier by the Blessed One, the Venerable Mahakachana explained it in detail, which he did in this manner while using these words, meanings and phrases. In hearing their words, the Blessed One replied, Mahakachana is wise, Vikus. Mahakachana possesses penetrating insight. If you had approached and asked me instead for the detailed explanation to this summary, I would have explained it to you in the exact same manner as did Mahakachana. For that indeed is its meaning, and that is how you should remember and bear it in your hearts. When this was said, the Venerable Ananda asked the Blessed One, Bhante, just like a man being weak and starved by hunger, were to be offered a honey ball. Whichever part of the dessert he may bite into, he would only taste its sweetness and delicious flavor. In the same manner, Bhante, whenever a competently skilled bhikkhu might carefully examine the meaning of this discourse on the Dhamma and with wisdom, he would only find satisfaction, joy, and tranquility of the heart. Bhante, what should be the name of this discourse on the Dhamma? Well, Ananda, as you put it, you may remember this discourse on the Dhamma as the honeyball discourse. This is what the Blessed One said, and the Venerable Ananda was satisfied and delighted in hearing the teacher's word. Oh, so, so. We see the differences in the continuously shape-shifting nature of sannyas. 
in and by closely looking at the movement of the heart, chitta. As Ajahn Mang would say in his classic poem, Kanda Vimutti, shape-shifting nature of the sannyas, they're constantly changing, but we're never there to see the arising and the vanishing. They're never steady. They're all anicca, they're all impermanent. But just a spark, just a spark is necessary to start this whole fire of personalization of me, myself, this is mine. I have to defend it tooth and nails business. Getting lost in the flowing images, the flooding of sanyas, or getting intoxicated with the unending issues constructed by the sankharas is how we're being played, played at the hands of the papanjas. And thus we're being caught in the quicksand of delusion. Delusion where there's no true and lasting freedom to be found. It is only when we put the energy and demanding some key answers from the heart itself, which requires us to be authentic as to why is this happening? Why am I in this mess? Being honest, demanding questions from the heart, not somebody else, that we can begin to see this trickery taking place. And when the heart stops believing the never-ending flow of perceptions, papanchas, then the eyes stop looking outward. The mind stops wasting its time judging or finding fault with others. And there is peace. There's no agitation. And the heart becomes cool when it is no longer in the clutches of the sankharas, no more lost in the whirlpool of papanchas. So I will stop here. And as you know, it's, it's, uh, it was an extensive, it is an extensive, uh, powerful sutta, one of my favorites. Uh, again, this was another intimidating sutta for me for many years because I couldn't understand the verses because they were so convoluted until I went in and tried to make sense of what Lord Buddha was saying. It was too abstract for me. That's not how I learn things. So um, I hope what I shared here today is useful to your practice and understanding of the Dhamma. And I will stop here, as I said, and, and open for any questions, thoughts, comments, critiques you may have and drink some water. Auntie, may I ask a question? Mm -hmm. um, I think it's a wonderful sutra, and I was wondering whether you can explain the difference between the teachings of the Dharma and concepts. Um, and when you mentioned that a bhikkhu has oceanic learning, it comes to my mind that how do you have oceanic learning of the Dharma if it does not allow a certain proliferation of the Dharma in the mind? So I, I, I'm just wondering, how do we 
make the distinction in ordinary life to tell the difference between the two and also the things that we need to guard away like our five senses uh, they could be useful in leading us to understand the dharma like you have this beautiful you know painting behind you and then it requires our eyes to see it and i would love to touch it so how do we kind of distinguish the so-called good concept of the dharma from these dangerous concepts that Arrest our minds. Thank you. Uh, of course, uh, um, um, you using the example of the painting. Uh, mm -hmm. It uh, you said uh, beautiful painting, and so that shows appreciation. But then you added the line, "I would love to touch it." I would love to touch it. You leaned into it too much. The Dhamma would say there was an appreciation up to that point. We were good. Everything was dandy. Everything was fine. But then there was this longing. I know you meant it, meant it in a, just you know, uh, as, as a form of, of, of saying it, let's say. Um, but what we do normally in our lives, we lean too much into it. That's when we're grabbing on to the eyesight, the objects of the eyesight, the objects of the ears, hearing, et cetera, et cetera. Now, if you recall several places I mentioned in different suttas where Lord Buddha, excuse me, is delineating clearly the middle path of not negating the importance of concept or concepting, if you will, thinking, pondering. He's not negating those because it is a tool, which as he pointed out, it's a tool that the person, the practitioner keeps on using until it wears itself out. Meaning you use the boat to get onto the other shore to safety. Now, the image that Lord Buddha gives is the raft, the boat. What many people think is that the person needs to carry the boat over their head. Now, funnily enough, it's, um, it's never recorded anywhere uh, that as far as I know, where a person has crossed over and carried the boat. It is only those people who are on this side of the bank of the river who are imagining, yeah, I'm sorry, imagining and, and, and uh, philosophizing, theorizing, in fact, that yes, on, once we're over there on that side, then we should carry these principles with us. Otherwise, how will the Arahant know that he's an Arahant? How will he act? How will he behave? How will, how will he do it? So, it is the deluded among us over here on this bank of the river using papanchas, imaginings, which is uh, manyana, imaginings. It's like somebody who's never gone to China in, you know, 400 years ago, thinking about how China is like. In Venice, before Marco Polo went, uh, they were saying people were coming from long travels and they were claiming that they had gone to China. And they were coming up with all these ridiculous things about people having uh, abnormal shape, more than one arm or more than two arms or two legs. And people were so gullible, they were believing it. Imaginings, complete imaginings. 
Now, this is the result of just living in Papancha land. Now, coming back to the first part of your question, there was, interestingly enough, there was a man, a prince, in fact, I forgot his name, who comes to Lord Buddha. I believe it's in the, if I'm not mistaken, it's in the numerical discourse, he comes to the Buddha and he says something along the lines of what you asked, meaning um, how does the Arahant, how does the teacher of Dhamma, how does Lord Buddha uh, carry all this knowledge? He must be uh, conceptualizing after all, right? He must be carrying the Dhamma in this invisible digital whatever iCloud library somewhere, right? And Lord Buddha had a knack of asking, you know, answering a question via a question and he turns to this question, uh, the questioner, the prince, and he says, Prince, you know uh, very well how to guide your chariot, right? And he was apparently, this prince was known for his charioteering uh, abilities. And he says, yes, of course. And he says, and he points out the different parts of the chariot. It's a two-wheel chariot that's drawn by these two beautiful stallions or one very powerful, fast moving, swift moving, you know, vehicle in those days. So you needed to have perfect control of it in different ways. You have to know everything about everything about the vehicle. So the Lord Buddha asks him about the different parts of the chariot and the prince points them out. And he says, yes, this is for this, this is for that. And he says, ah, now when you're riding the chariot, are you carrying all that knowledge? in a, some type of a manuscript, somebody who's repeating them to you? He says, no, of course not, he says. They're part of me. The person has reached a deep level of understanding, proficiency, expertise. The knowledge and the person have become one. Perfection. It's like an art form. I remember years ago, I was a teenager, and when I used to do Kung Fu, Wushu, and then people said, well, what does Kung Fu mean? Uh, what this person mentioned to me was, I don't know if it's complete, but it makes sense. I've asked uh, other individuals over the years, but basically it's mastery, skillfulness to such a depth that you and the thing are one. So there isn't a concepting, a thinking of. It just flows because the person is now living within what is happening in the confines of this moment. They're not dwelling in the past. And in fact, just to use another example from martial arts, they say that if there are two people uh, going in to fight each other, a duel or something, the person who is going to think about or, or is thinking about what will be his or her next move is already defeated. Why? Because they shut themselves out of reality. They're not there. They're dead, in fact, they're dead because they're living in Papanchas. So that's what 
my understanding is vis-a-vis uh, the usefulness of concepts. They need to, we need to have concepts after all, that's what we're using. So we should be very careful between uh, going into like, uh, no, it's, it's either this or that. No, 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 no. The middle path is crucial. The middle path is crucial for our understanding to constantly be brought into focus. Otherwise, the mind loves becoming and non-becoming. How's this working for you? I'm glad. Good. Any other thoughts, questions, comments? Uh, thank you, Bhante. Uh, you know, I always have to over. I I always try to even simplify more because uh, I can't quite grasp things. Would it be fair to use the word to, word, like today when you were talking about uh, how the uh, mental thoughts and the different proliferations and uh, delusions um, kind of possess you? I was thinking that uh, I, I'm gonna, it would be wrong to say that uh, I'm kind of, uh, you know, to use the word colonized, that I'm kind of colonized by these these type of uh, phenomena and that, you know, through the colonization, of course, it creates many sense of uh, say false status or certain kind of delusions. But all the while I'm, I'm actually possessed whether I realize it or not. And of course the goal is to, once I recognize this, is to kind of liberate myself uh, from this kind of colonization of my body or my mind and so forth. But is that, is that too weird a way? Well, it, it, it definitely uh, says uh, a few things uh, about the person using the word colonization. And um, if I were to look at the word and uh, I can't help but also look at the person and you know which part of the world they come from, et cetera, et cetera automatically what that will give me is an image of what you might might be meaning with the word usage of colonization. So immediately the mind might go, oh, colonizers, imperial European colony, uh, you know, colonizing and all that stuff can play in. So I need to, at that point, really jump back into the questioner and ask, what do you mean by colonizing? Is there remnants of those images, feelings attached to it? Uh, because that is significant. Because ultimately, what that might mean also is that the papanchas that are playing in the mind of the questioner in the usage of the word colony, colonizing, that might also be playing a part in obscuring or creating this obscuration rather of, of something there's some layers of a personalization there. So I find it much more useful uh, to use a rather more neutral word, word like person, personalizing. I use that instead of self-identification because oftentimes many people like, what do you mean by self-identification? It's become overly used, but not enough explanation provided. But when we say I'm personalizing it, okay, it's my person, I'm taking 
it under my skin. I'm seeing it as part of me. So again, though, however it works for you to give you a fullest spectrum of what the papanchas are, go ahead and use that term if it sounds good for you. But please be cognizant that there might be some old wounds of, yeah, you're giggling, uh, that is or would be playing in the background. Remember, we're all subject, so long as we're not arahants, we're all being subject to this magic show of trickery. So the sannyas are always going to present the victim and the, the, the perpetrator story, good and bad, love and hate. It's always, when you have those feelings in you, in your mind, guess what? There's no equanimity, meaning you are in the grasp, in the death trap of the kileshas. Despite how logical, how much making sense there is in there. Like, yeah, but history says that, you know, my ancestors, da, 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 da. I get it. But it's still the play of the sannyas. Labels, memories, concepts, um, even expectations. Because what will ensue from sannyas inevitably is this dichotomy, good and bad, love and hate, love and hate, love and hate. Now, if you're practicing sati, if you're practicing a meditation object that brings you to a place where you can pull yourself away from it by a few millimeters even and look at it as an external happening, then you'll see the sannyas for what they are. Instead of being sucked into the, in this case, let's say the colonization wounds. So that's no, how... this is sorry. Uh, no, this is helpful. No, actually, I wasn't referring to say white or European colonizers. I kind of meant it in the sense that all right, one could be colonized by COVID, by one's own desire, by some other kind of mental parasites uh, that enter. Mm -hmm. So that's kind of uh, how I meant because of course I, I I think I'm fairly aware that if I do the black and white thing and just say, oh, well, imperialism caused, caused everything. That's really kind of over simplistic. But what, what I meant by colonizers is that, you know, we ourselves, you know, uh, <clears throat> colonize ourselves too. I mean, we, we don't guard against things that we let uh, greed, uh, desire, delusion enter and colonize, uh, uh, you know, ourself. And, you know, many times it's very, seductive so we don't really realize it until it's a little bit too late you know so anyway thank you of course yes yes yeah in that sense uh, i mean that's why a few times I, I i mentioned how the real virus is not covid <laughs> because ultimately we're gonna die anyhow right but the real virus is the delusion the ignorance which i'm going to be carrying with me if i'm not if I haven't cut the cord by the end of this life, sorry. So I'm saving this body for what? For the worms later on? So I, I give myself another 20 years, 30 years, 50 years, 60 years, fine. What's next? I'm still gonna croak and die. 
So that's not a virus for me, what they're talking about, what they're making such a big deal about. We're all gonna die. Yeah, protect yourself, of course. Take some measures to protect yourself, I get it. But can I approach the real virus inside, my delusion, my convincing myself of things that don't exist in reality and not looking at the actual culprit, which is my being unmindful when these attackers are coming in through these six gates. And I'm completely relinquishing. I'm just like waving my hands and running away and, you know, calling the guards and saying, fall back, fall back, you know, we're doomed. Or it's okay, it's party time. We're not gonna actually have any harm coming in from outside. <coughs> All these strategies that we have, so which end up causing us suffering at the end. And it's a cyclical, cyclical uh, happening. And that is the virus as far as I'm concerned. Any other thoughts, comments? Yeah, this is a sutta that requires uh, going back to again and again and again. Uh, it has so much to give. It's a wonderful sutta discourse. Um, Thanks very much, Mante, for the talk. Um, from my understanding of this sutta, it is definitely not about um, not seeing, not hearing, not tasting, not smelling, not touching, not thinking, uh, so as not to um, allow papancha to happen, but um, but rather to um, use the six senses wisely mm -hmm. to not get caught into um, unnecessary thoughts. Because um, it actually reminds me of the very last um, Sutta in the Majjhima Nikaya, which is uh, 152, I think it's called Indriya Pawana Sutta, whereby um, I think a lay, uh, an external sect um, pupil comes to the Buddha and, and the Buddha asks him, um, how does your master teach um, the development of the uh, sense faculties? And he says, um, it's when the eyes do not see and the ears do not hear. And the Buddha says, look, um, if that's the case, then a blind man and a deaf man would, would uh, become arahants. Mm -hmm. So um, it's, uh, I guess it's, uh, you know, it's a balance between um, the two extremes of sensual indulgence uh, indulgence and um, self-mortification um, as uh, being mentioned in the Dhammachaka uh, Pawatana Sutta. Mm -hmm. Does that make sense? Mm -hmm. Absolutely. I'm glad you, uh, if you weren't going to use that sutta, I was going to. Uh, you jumped uh, ahead and you, you used it. I'm glad you did. Uh, uh, that uh, sectarian person who comes and asks uh, the Buddha, what's the technique, you know? And the Buddha says, what does your teacher teach? And he said, like you pointed out, you know, uh, not hearing, not seeing, I was like, okay, so uh, 
a person who doesn't have those senses, then it means they're awakened. And the person actually sits there glum. And the Buddha has, uh, <laughs> you know, I guess he has some fun with him later on. And I think he turns to our Venerable Ananda and says, do you believe this guy, this, this, this person's teacher? This is what he teaches. And then Lord Buddha explains, of course, um, what the proper teaching is. And as you were mentioning, and as I mentioned several times today, uh, about the Majjhimapada, the middle path, middle path. Sometimes people even have a misconception about the middle path. I've had individuals, uh, I think I mentioned them once here, where they said, well, it's middle. So in instead of drinking 10 bottles of beer, you can drink three or four. So that's, that's, that's okay, right? That's your, you know, that's your teacher. No, 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 no. That's completely misconstruing the teaching, misrepresenting the Dhamma. Middle path means using the six senses, but understanding the differences when we are leaning into it, like you mentioned, how I would love to touch it, the painting, versus acknowledging it, calling it pretty initially because your eyes caught it, you saw it, you responded to it, and there's nothing wrong with responding. Now, as we go deeper in the practice, we need to learn how to understand and appreciate seclusion, secluding ourselves from the senses. And what I mean by that is the second part of what you mentioned, meaning the leaning into it part. I would love to touch that because it looks it, it, it looks interesting. I want to reach over. That is where the precautionary note comes in. The seclusion. Like last uh, time we were talking about the Badekarata, the ideal lover of solitude. What is the solitude that we were talking about? It's not necessarily physically because there's a lot of people who are secluding themselves in different settings, maybe even in, in a cave, in a monastery, in a temple, in a room, whatever the case may be. But they might have in their hearts all kinds of delu uh, deluded thinking, feelings, attachments, longings. Not every person, for example, who wears robes is completely secluded. Not every person who's a lay person is not. So we need to be secluded from our six senses. And that's where the guarding comes in. The guard doesn't just stop anyone and, and turn them away. The guard is there to protect the palace, to, to protect the, the city. From what? From any harmful, malevolent, malevolent uh, presences, any threats. That's what the six senses need to be restrained by. And that's what I understand as seclusion. Because too much of our life energy is being depleted, leaking out. Asavas, they're called contaminants, into and through the sixth sense doors. 
and they don't have to be because there's no way of fulfilling them. Despite all your efforts to look at a beautiful thing, you will never ever truly be satisfied. Despite how often you like to listen to, let's say a beautiful piece of music that you consider to be beautiful. You're gonna still go ahead and listen to it. Want more, want, want more. It's like that empty barrel that you keep filling up, filling up. Empty because the bottom part is, on, is not there. There isn't a lid on the other end. So whatever we put in there, it goes straight through it without putting even a dent, slightest dent. So let us not fall into the extreme position, which immediately means that we are not practicing samadhi, which is right view. The moment we go into extremes, like, oh, the Buddha is saying, so we shouldn't in, uh, experience any of the senses. We should close our eyes, our ears. No, no, no. That's not what the Buddha is saying. But we're not slaves to them either. So thank you for that, uh, Patissa and uh, for bringing that up. And I hope that was helpful also, what I offered. Yes, definitely. Thank you very much. Mm -hmm. Any other thoughts, comments, questions before we close? Okay. So let's share some merits. May suffering ones be suffering free and the fear struck fearless be. May the grieving shed all grief and may all beings find health relief. May all beings share in these merits that we have thus acquired for the acquisition of all kinds of wholesome happiness. May beings inhabiting space and earth, devas and nagas of mighty power share in these merits of ours. May they long protect Buddha's dispensation. Sad, sad, sad. May the Triple Gem bless you all. Uh, and for all those of you traveling, whether short or long distances, may you arrive to your destinations with safety, comfort, and at peace. Be well, and I see you next week. Take care.